Okay, please come on back in and find your seats. And actually, let's stand together as we sing about the value of Jesus Christ. We've heard about his person, his work. He's coming again. And so let's sing, I'd rather have Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the of a vast domain, or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's bread I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Amen. You may be seated. And as you are, we're going to have Pastor Dave Knutson come on up and lead us in prayer. Years ago, Dave was part of Duluth Bible Church, and he's been the pastor of Grace Gospel Bible Church in the Twin Cities for many years. Okay, thank you. Let's have a word, friends. Father, we thank you again for just the opportunity to be here at the conference, and we thank you again for the speakers, for their speaking ability, and the truths they're communicating. Again, remind us of your faithfulness, your goodness, and your care for the Jewish people. Again, the promises you've made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be fulfilled again in the future. And we're just thankful for that. We thank you that since uh, they could depend upon, the Jews could depend upon your faithfulness to keep your word, Father, we can depend upon you to keep your word to us as well today. We thank you for that. We commit our time to you now. Pray for Mike Stallard here, Dr. Stallard, and in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Dave. <clears throat> we're thankful for men of God. Uh, many, those of you who are here and the pastors who've served for years, Dave especially, and we're thankful for Dr. Stallard as well. He's been a pastor in years past. He's been a seminary professor. He currently serves as vice president of international, or yeah, vice president of international ministries with the Friends of Israel. So he's really an ideal choice for this uh, last portion where we see climactically what's going to happen with Israel and the plan of God. So Mike, please come on up and teach us again. 
Well, good afternoon. This is the post-post-lunch uh, session, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, get through it uh, okay. I wanted to remind you, uh, Friends of Israel lets me give out free one-year subscriptions to Israel My Glory magazine. There's still some sign-up sheets downstairs. Uh, sheet looks like this. If you sign up, you get six issues for free. Uh, a year uh, after a year, they'll send you an email asking you to to pay for another year of subscription. But if they let me come back to this conference next year and you come back, we'll put up another free sign-up sheet and you can kind of keep it going forever until Jesus comes. Uh, but, um, and, and I have a policy, don't ask, don't tell, so uh, when you sign up. So uh, take advantage of that. Uh, it's a good magazine. It's a Bible study magazine and an issues magazine. Uh, covering prophecy sometimes, covering anti-Semitism sometimes, and other issues relative to the Jewish people. And the Friends of Israel, uh, as a ministry, uh, we do social, uh, physical comfort ministries to the Jewish people because uh, they have been so hurt by Christians throughout the centuries, and they have a very long memory. And uh, the wall has been built up, and you have to break it down. And so, like in Ukraine, we are helping synagogues to rebuild after damage. Uh, we're, we, we've helped a soup kitchen, Jewish soup kitchen, uh, plus we're sending tons of supplies in to make sure the Jewish people are not forgotten in Ukraine. And so, and we have a worker in Ukraine. So we pray for her, her name's uh, Tatiana Kratinko. And if you remember that name, pray for her. Uh, she lives in Kiev, uh, and she's decided to stay to minister to the Jewish people. So we're thankful for those kinds of people. And all around the world, we're in nine countries outside the United States and Canada. And those uh, people in those countries go into seven or eight other countries. So uh, we're having, trying to have a worldwide impact wherever there are Jewish people. We also, everywhere we go, the gospel goes and the Bible goes. Uh, and then we have a ministry to the churches where we teach the churches what the Bible says about Israel. I'm doing that right now. Okay, and so we do all over the country, and a lot of churches don't care about that. Uh, but I think you care about it here. So, and uh, we're grateful to have this wonderful opportunity uh, to share with you. Before I get into the message, I want to tell a story that's a true story. I told it last year. There may be some people. How many of you were not here last year? A few? Okay. So I'm going to retell the story for you who were here last year. Uh, I think I told it last year. Maybe it was two years ago. I'm getting old. Uh, so... Uh, in 2002, uh, I was going to the Evangelical Theological Society, of which I'm a member, in Toronto, Canada. I was going to speak at that meeting. And uh, I was going with Rod Decker, a good friend of mine. He's with the Lord now, great New Testament scholar. And we were driving up from uh, Baptist Bible Seminary, Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, where I lived, up to the Niagara Falls crossing into Canada. But it was just after 9-11, 2002, and the difficulty of going across borders had ratcheted up. And so, you know, the temperature ratchets up, and you, you're apprehensive, and you're wondering how things are going to go. You know, so I had my passport, I had my social security card, I had my fourth grade report card, I had everything. <laughs> I had everything. I, I, you know, I was, I was trying to convince them who I am, and I'm an okay guy, I'm not a terrorist. But when I, I got there, it wasn't very crowded crossing the border, and there was just one car in front of me. But the driver was standing on the sidewalk next to his car, and he looked Middle Eastern. 
They had the hood up, the trunk up, all the doors open, and several agents rifling through his car. And so immediately my blood pressure is going up. I wonder, okay, are they profiling or do they do this with everybody? And so I'm thinking, I'm going to be here an hour, two hours, trying to cross the border and concerned about that. You know how that is. You get apprehensive. We Americans, we don't like to stand in lines for long, especially men. Okay. Well, they shut everything up, and then they made him drive over to the right. They were going to spend more time with him. And so I pull up with all that in my head. And so the border guard asked me, where are you going? I wanted to sound official. So I said, I'm going to Toronto to the Evangelical Theological Society meeting uh, to speak. Then he asked me what I didn't expect. He said, what are you speaking on? <laughs> I said, the future of dispensationalism. Then he said, is that a good thing? <laughs> I said, I think it's a good thing. And then he blew me away. He asked me, are you pre-trib? I said, well, yes, I am. Then he said, how do you answer the charge that God took Noah through the flood? Typical post-trib argument, right? You know, and the comeback is, of course, that uh, God took Lot out before it came. And I explained, you don't, can't use historical narratives that way. Okay. So we had this conversation that seemed like it was an hour long, but it was probably just a couple minutes, you know, one of those deals. And I'm beginning to, to feel like, okay, the previous guy wasn't going to get across the border because he looked like a terrorist, and I'm not going to get across because I'm a dispensationalist. <laughs> and finally, the guy looked down at me and winked at me and said, I'm a dispensation. I'm, I'm a pre-trip guy you can go through. <laughs> he didn't look at anything. Didn't look at my passport, my social security card, or my fourth grade report card. I just went on through, and I got to thinking, he must have a very boring job. <laughs> the only time he gets excitement is when a possible terrorist comes by or a dispensationalist. <laughs> oh. But when we come to uh, Romans 9 to 11, in fact, the entire Bible, and especially the Old Testament prophets. We have kind of an adversarial war going on between brothers in Christ, the reform camp, and dispensationalist. And you need to make uh, no bones about it. You need to understand clearly that they view us almost as if we are a cult. They view us as if we are theological terrorists who are tromping through the Bible, wreaking havoc. But the fact of the matter is, we're tromping through the Bible and believing it. They have troubles at several spots believing it. And so that's really what the debate is about in chapters 9, 10, and 11 in Romans. And uh, I want to uh, walk this through with you. It is... Um, one of the most interesting sections of the Bible. But make no mistake, we must stand on the truth of the future of Israel. And I'll try to tie it up at the end, because the character of God, and it's been mentioned a few times already, the character of God 
is up for grabs if the promises to Israel are not kept. And we're going to walk through that as we go through this. I do want to give a little um, uh, background, uh, the wonderful little chart that uh, Tom gave us at the very beginning. Uh, I have a simplified one. Um, I'm not as complicated as him, perhaps. Uh, but condemnation in Romans 1 through 3, justification in Romans 4 through 5, sanctification in Romans 6 through 8. And I, I agreed with your chart there, Tom. I really liked it. The future of Israel in Romans 9 through 11. And then the application section in Romans 12 through 16. And so we are dealing with uh, the future of Israel section. But when we get into chapter 11 itself, there's a context, more local context that I wanted to talk about. In verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And then the examples that the speakers have eloquently uh, given. So God has not rejected his people. Shouldn't that be enough? Right? Shouldn't that be enough? But apparently with some people, it's not enough. And then later on in verse 11, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? The answer to both of these questions given in the text is may it never be, or for those of you with the inspired New King James, certainly not. <laughs> then we have a transitional verse into our section, which is verse 16. It says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are two. The term first fruit, uh, the term uh, uh, that's, that's given there, uh, if the first piece is actually the, the Greek word first fruits, which we know from other passages. So it needs given the image of dough, making bread. Uh, so if the first piece, the first fruits are holy, then the rest is too. I take the word holy there uh, as a reference uh, to a positional separation, special, set apart. Uh, I don't necessarily see that there is a moral connotation to that. Um, but as we go along, certainly there's a moral connotation to salvation that people receive. Uh, but here, the first piece of dough is holy, that is set apart, special, first piece in context, probably talking about Israel. But then he, he switches the metaphor. And if the root is holy, the branches are two. And then he develops, not the first metaphor, the rest of the passage begins to, or much of the rest of the passage, begins to develop the root analogy, the root metaphor, and the idea of a tree. Now, why does he shift from the other? I think it, it was easier for him to develop that metaphor to get across the points that he wanted to get across. And so you have dough, you have a root or a tree, it's, you know, leading to a tree, and they are holy. Now, at the outset, I just want to tell you what I think the views of the root are. Now, there are probably 30 different views in the commentaries. I'm not going to give you all of them. Uh, one is 
that the root is Jesus. Now we do know that Jesus and his work is the basis for all that takes place. We understand that. Uh, but that doesn't mean he's the answer to every theological question. But uh, many people hold to that. Some see it's a remnant of Jewish Christians. Some see it as Abraham and the patriarchs, maybe Israel itself. I struggle with the idea of the whole tree being Israel because Israel, the, branch, the natural branches are broken off later in the passage. They're Israel, not the tree. So I think it probably represents something else. And what I hold is that it's the spiritual blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And when you, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit later about the operational or administrative side of what that means. Uh, but in the spiritual blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, okay, I'm still trying to get this thing figured out up here. Spiritual blessings of the uh, Abrahamic covenant. We go into Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. That's still in the Bible. God's not annulled that anywhere that I can tell. And the one who curses you, I will curse. You know, ask Hitler and Stalin and Saddam Hussein how that goes. If you could talk to him today. And in you, that is in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And of course, I believe the blessing comes through Christ as a means. But he, I don't think, is the root. I think it's the promises, the spiritual promises under the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we come down to verse 17 to 22. Let me just read that section together to get it in our minds together. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So we'll have to develop uh, those verses, a lot of interesting issues in there. But you have... Well, basically, it starts out, you have an olive tree, and you have natural branches, which represent the Jews and Israel. And then you have wild grafted branches, which I think references the Gentiles. And the, branch, the Jewish branches in verse 17 were broken off. Israel was cast aside. And we would say, for a time. The covenant guys would say they were cast off forever, at least in the program and national program for them as the chosen people of God. So, some of you have been to Israel. How many of you have been to Israel? 
Okay, if you have, and, and you've seen uh, some of the uh, olive trees, and you may have seen some of the wild shoots uh, that grow out of the, usually around the base of the olive tree. Now, Paul's not using that image, but what happens in real life with olive trees that those shoots grow up and they become part of the major big tree. And so you have these four or five sometimes olive trees welded together and they look like one tree, but they came from several different shoots at different times. Uh, and some of the trees are 2,000 years old when you go over there and look at them. Uh, but uh, the image, though, is not that, per se. He's talking about grafting in. That means cutting off and sticking in. It's probably not an image that's a natural image. It's one that Paul is inventing to help convey his point. Uh, natural branches broken off the Jews, which gave an opportunity for wild branches, the Gentiles to come in. Because after all, 90% of the Abrahamic covenant, maybe more, is for Israel. But there is that section where it blesses the whole world, but it's through Israel. And so it's important that we understand the, the centrality of Israel in all of these things. Now the olive tree uh, again, some take, oh, it's an olive tree. Olive tree is symbolic of Israel, so the olive tree and the root have to be Israel. But you know, in the Bible, in, the, in Revelation 11, the two witnesses are the olive tree. It's not Israel, it's the two witnesses. And then you have in Zechariah 5, two men, symbols of olive tree and the power of the Holy Spirit and all that in that passage. And it's not Israel, it's two leaders in Israel. So we want to be careful and not make the identification and run through the whole Bible and everywhere we see an olive tree, therefore it must be Israel. Certainly, an olive tree is symbolic and part of the culture of Israel. But you want to be careful to read the context. And here, it can't be Israel. The tree can't be Israel because you have Israel are the branches, the natural branches that are broken off. So the root itself is not going to be Israel. It's going to be the promises in the Abrahamic covenant, which are broad enough to encompass both Jews and Gentiles. Then he goes into verse 18, and he answers the question, begins to answer the question in these next verses, why Gentiles should not boast? He's worried that, okay, Israel's been cast aside, and we come in. And I tend to think that covenant theology right now Boasts. Israel has been cast aside. We're in. We're the hot dog. Israel's been cast away. And I think they're in danger of boasting about that, our position in Christ. Gentiles, first of all, should not boast because uh, they do not support the root. Verse 18, that's exactly what he says. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And that root, if I'm right, that is the promises under the Abrahamic covenant, that root came through the Jewish people, even though the Abrahamic covenant is not just Jewish, not just Israelite, uh, it comes through the Jewish people, and you need to remember that. That supports you, not the other way around. And then secondly, he says it is faith that grounds the position of the Gentiles. Notice 
Verse 19, you will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. Israel rejected the Messiah. There's no question. Now, a few Israelis, a few Israelites, a few Jewish people in the first century accepted Jesus. But for the most part, the leadership and the masses did not accept him. So they were broken off for their unbelief. And I'm going to argue that they're broken off. Uh, and I'll, well, I'll save that for the next point. Uh, they were broken off. They didn't believe. But you stand by your faith. So we are added because of our faith. The Gentiles by faith. Now, is this talking about individual redemption? And this is where it gets a little difficult. Is it talking about a plan that God has with a certain people group? Or is it talking about individuals getting saved? Or is it a mixture of the two? Now, notice the verses 21 and 22. For if, he says in verse 20, do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. If the issue is just individual redemption, then we have some problems with the idea we've got to continue in his kindness. That would contradict so many other passages and uh, kind of have a works salvation. Uh, so I don't think that's what it means. I think uh, God can remove the Gentiles, he's telling us, from his operational plan for a time. Haven't you heard throughout your uh, ministries and studies uh, that God has two programs, one with Israel and one with the church? Now, sometimes you might say, well, what about the people that aren't in Israel and aren't in the church? He does other things too. But there's these two big programs of God in the Bible, his plan with Israel and his plan with the church, two separate tracks. But to be on both tracks, or to say it a different way, to be in the tree, uh, you have to know the Lord. So individuals do have to know the Lord to be in there. But the, the overall plan of God, the overall program of God is conditioned. And the Jews lost their place because of so much rebellion against God. But even the Jews who trusted Christ, their, their nation was removed from the plan, put on hold, not totally replaced. And now the church, we're grafted in. Gentiles are put into the tree and God is working with us. It's his operational plan. It's his program in the church age. And so I think we need to think of it in terms of program or operational. I think the word that was used earlier in some of the earlier presentations was administrative. And God is working through the world, through the church, blessed through the Abrahamic covenant promises. And uh, Israel has been put aside for, on hold for that, but he can come, Israel can come back, which is where we go next. Beginning in verse 23, uh, well, before I go there, can the Gentiles actually be taken out? Can God stop his plan for them? Well, when we get to the tribulation period, the plan for a lot of people stops. And then you go to the second coming, 
and there's judgment. And so yes, uh, God's plans, uh, you know, for eternity when we get to the new heavens and new earth, the, the new Jerusalem has the names of the 12 tribes on the gates uh, and the, you know, and those pearly gates, that was not made up by preachers, that's in the Bible. Okay, and, and, the, and of course each, each gate made by one pearl, I mean made by one uh, clam, it's one pearl, that's a big clam. So we don't know how that's going to be in the coming, but those gates are Israel. But then the foundation stones of the apostles who were both Jews, but also the, the founding fathers of the church after Christ. And so uh, God has a plan for both continuing for all eternity, but there's a temporary stifling of all of it as God deals in judgment in the tribulation period. But he is still saving individuals during that time. But what does he go on to say? Uh, he, he tells the Gentiles, be careful, because God can graft Israel in again. Now let's stop and think. What does it say? If... And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, in other words, they have to believe, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Now let's stop and think about that for a second. How would a covenant guy take this? How would the reform camp take this? Do they deny that God can graft Israel back in? Because remember, Israel's gone for them. They don't have a future for Israel. Well, this is how they do it. They see Jewish people coming to Christ and coming into the church. And for them, that's the grafting in. So they don't see it the same way that we do. Uh, so they are committed to the replacement idea, or they just handle individuals, Jewish people, coming to faith and into the church. But how much, how much more do we need for God to say? Because we teach... God's going to bring Israel back, right? God's going to bring Israel. He's already brought them back into the land. They actually exist in the land, right? He's going to bring them all the way. This passage says he can do that. And we accept that and we expect that. And I think the passage goes on to suggest that. The second thing here in his promise for Israel's future is he says the hardening is only partial and temporary. Verses 25 to 27. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, uh, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The hardening is partial and temporary. It is not forever. So we cannot say that Israel has been cast away forever. Can't do it if we're going to be fair to the Bible. Now, in verse 26... And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what does this mean? So all Israel will be saved. 
Well, I think it means uh, a couple things. I think certainly national deliverance is going to happen. I think this refers to the second coming when Christ comes back and they see him upon uh, and they'll mourn about the one that they pierced based on Zechariah and Revelation chapter 1. And they will turn to him and those Jewish people who endured to the end of the tribulation will come to Christ and they'll enter in uh, to the kingdom uh, under the banner of Israel. And they'll probably be joined by Old Testament saints and others among the, uh, those from Israel. And so I think that's what this is talking about. When it says, so all Israel will be saved. They're individually going to trust the Lord, and, but then God's going to take them into the kingdom. He's going to pick up again his overall plan and purpose for them. Then, the, then we have this quote. This quote comes from Isaiah 59, 20 to 21. Uh, it's quoted pretty much like it is in the Old Testament there. Uh, and sounds to me like it's the time when the deliverer comes. In fact, it reminds me of Zechariah 14, 12, 13, and 14, especially 14 when the Messiah comes to defend Israel and defeats all her enemies, and she becomes godly again. Uh, but then verse 27, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins, that passage, uh, the everlasting uh, covenant in Isaiah, sometimes it's translated. Uh, what is that? And I put Jeremiah 31 up here. I tend to lean toward that covenant being the new covenant. Uh, of course, dispensationalists disagree on the new covenant more than any other doctrine in the Bible. I found that out in 2009. Uh, I head up the Council on Dispensation of Hermeneutics, and we had a that was our topic for the year, and we debated that among ourselves for two days. And uh, pretty much we came to the conclusion that we disagree. Uh, my, uh, my own view is that the new covenant uh, is applied to the church without the church being a legal party to the covenant. The covenant is for Israel. And one of the things that we want to do is make sure and defend the fact that God is going to fulfill that covenant in Jeremiah 31 with Israel. And it's going to happen when Jesus comes, in my opinion. And so uh, we want to be careful not to sneak the church in that door. But God has sovereignly chosen the spiritual blessings of the new covenant to dump those on the church in the present time, but not as legal parties to that covenant. But some of that's based on the language of Hebrews and other passages, Lord's Supper passages, as you kind of sort those things out. A difficult thing and dispensationalists do not agree, but all of us agree on one thing. Israel is going to have the, the promise fulfilled to the nation. And so the partial uh, hardening, the temporary hardening, it's going to be gone, and God is going to uh, totally remove that, and there's a spiritual blessing that comes. And God will take away their sins as part of that. But he's not just taking away their sins, he's actually picking up again the nation and his program with that nation. And then number three, Israel is loved because of the fathers. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Israel is loved because of the fathers. They are enemies, 
I have attended uh, some, is, some uh, synagogue services as part of my ministry with the Friends of Israel. I was in Vichy, France, visiting a synagogue. Uh, we have a worker, a family, with Friends of Israel in Vichy, France. Uh, and they took me to the synagogue. And they have been going for 10 years. This, our, French, our, our Friends of Israel workers have been going to, for 10 years to that synagogue. And they have, you know, they, they have their own church, but then they go on Saturday to the synagogue. And they're building relationships, and there was a Holocaust survivor in that congregation named Hannah, and they led her to Christ. Praise the Lord. Now she has Alzheimer's, and she has forgotten that she got saved. But the Lord knows. I believe she's saved. Uh, and when I went in that service and watched and kind of learned what they were doing, a little bibliology, they take, you know, they open the front, which represents the Ark of the Covenant, uh, you know, the, the uh, little cabinet, and they pull out the Bible, and then they do a parade around the auditorium. The women were upstairs. This was Orthodox service. The women were upstairs, the men downstairs, kids running everywhere, both girls and boys, okay? Uh, and they haven't been able to segregate the girls and the boys. Uh, but they run around, and the guys are all down here, and they're wearing their prayer shawls. I've got to wear a hat. And then they call up men to just read, and the whole service was just reading the Bible in Hebrew. That's all it was. There wasn't even a sermon. The sermon came afterwards. We had a little meal, a little snack meal afterwards around some tables, and, where the, and, the, and they passed out uh, you know, Diet Coke, pretzels, and whiskey. And I'm, a, and I'm a Baptist, and here's the, here's the rabbi giving his 15-minute homily as we're sitting around snacking with a shot glass of whiskey. Uh, and I'm trying to figure all this out. Um, and he was preaching in French. You know, they read in Hebrew, but he's preaching in French uh, it, to the homily to those people, and they understood, and they were uh, my friends who were French who were trying to translate uh, for me to help me kind of follow him, but it was kind of hard to get past that shot glass of whiskey. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, but you know, the, those people far away from God and what they believe, far away, but God still loves them. In fact, God so loved the world, he loves everybody, right, at some level, but he loves them especially, not because of who they are particularly, but because of the Father's. Do you remember in Deuteronomy 7, some of the earliest passages uh, explaining the choosing of them in Deuteronomy 7 in verse 6, says to them, Moses is Moses giving a sermon before they go into teaching, before they go into the Holy Land. He says, verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Now, holy didn't mean that they were really spiritual people. Because remember all the fighting going on? And all the trouble going on throughout the, the wilderness wanderings? You are a holy people to the Lord. They're separated, special. To the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I mean, he had to choose 
some group, some ethnic group through which the Messiah would come. Somebody had to be chosen, and he picked them. Verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, that's so important. He made an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if God does not have an ultimate salvation plan for Israel's restoration as a nation, then he breaks his oath. And that's why I've said at the beginning, God's character is at stake here. Now, uh, back, to, uh, back to Romans. Israel is loved because of the fathers. I have a commentary. It's Matthew Henry commentary. How many of you pastors have a copy of Matthew Henry? A few of you? How many of you actually use it? A couple hands went up. It's a very underused commentary. He's a Puritan father. He's covenant. He's not with us, uh, but he is a brother in Christ, and he's in heaven now, and we'll get to hug his neck one day, and he'll say, I've changed my mind. <laughs> in his commentary on Luke 1, 31 and 35, when Gabriel comes to Mary to explain to her the virgin birth, uh, you have all that eloquent language that Gabriel gives to her about the virgin birth. And we all look at that, the covenant guys look at that, we look at that, and we all take it literally at face value. We all believe in the virgin birth. It's a miracle, yes, by a creator who made everything out of nothing, so it's a small miracle. But right in the middle of that section, if you pay, go pay attention to it, that's Luke 1, uh, 31 down to 35, he says, and he, that, that son who's coming in the virgin birth, is going to rule on the David's throne and over the house of Jacob forever. Stuff about, let's say it, Israel. Okay. Well, Matthew Henry comes to that, and his covenant theology cannot abide that. So he says this can't possibly be talking about Israelites according to the flesh. But how would Mary have understood that? She would clearly have understood it as Israelites according to the flesh. Matthew Henry says, it can't be them because we know this. They did not go come into the interest of Christ. That is, they denied Jesus. So they're swept away. And he gives a second reason. He says, they're not on my Google map. Israel doesn't exist. Now he, was, he died about 1701, 1702. There were Christians back then who had faith that God would bring Israel back. But a lot of them didn't have the faith that God could do that. And so it, that was his reason for denying the clear teaching of a passage, that this son who's coming is going to rule and reign over the house of Jacob, Israel, forever. Yeah. Israel is loved because of the father's it's always been so. And then fourth, God never revokes an unconditional promise. 
It's interesting, the structure of this verse, verse 29, says, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable is an adjective, uh, and it has, in the Greek text, it has an emphatic position. It's the first word, where in my English, uh, NASB, it's the last word. Uh, It reads, irrevocable are the gifts and calling uh, of God. The gifts and calling of God. Irrevocable means, uh, you you want to know what it means in Greek? It means irrevocable. It means it cannot be canceled. It cannot be taken back. It cannot be changed. God could always modify it by doing more than he promised, but he can never do less than he promised. Otherwise, he is going back and canceling a prior promise. And so what are those promises? Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. Those are unconditional promises that God made. And I want to take you to a a passage. It's one of my favorites, and I think a lot of us have that, Psalm 89. I think it's actually a strong passage that uh, gives a strong hint in the Old Testament of premillennialism. In Psalm 89, I'm going to start with verse 20, just for sake of time. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name, his horn, his kingdom will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for a little while. Did I read that right? No. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him, so I will establish his descendants For a little while? Forever. And his throne as the days of heaven. And now notice that this is particularly a strong section here coming up. If his sons, okay, I think talking about those who rule on the throne of David. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, Then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, that is David, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Now, can you swear by anything higher than the holiness of God? 
His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. There was always a descendant who can rule on the throne of David at any time in history after this. Even the disobedience of kings, and we saw see a lot of it in the narratives of the Old Testament, even their disobedience cannot annul the plan of God in the Davidic covenant. Now, an individual, the way I take it, an individual can scrub himself out of the blessing, but he cannot, through his disobedience, annul the promise of God. Why? As Romans tells us uh, in this passage, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, did you see in that God swearing by his holiness? You see again how God's character is at stake in these discussions that we're having? I don't think we make enough of that in our talks with the covenant guys. Their view, in my opinion, does injustice to the very nature of God. And so we need to be careful in the way that we deal with these things. And then uh, number five, God uses disobedience to provide mercy to all. In 30, verse 30, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. And here, I don't take this is not disobedience in everyday life, but disobedience to the truth of the gospel. You, know, you were once disobedient. You were alien to the commonwealth of God. You had rejected who he was and his plan of salvation, but now have been shown mercy because of their, the Jewish, disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient, so that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. So it can go the other way. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Isn't that a fascinating concept, that God uses disobedience to provide mercy to all? God is a master at turning ashes into beauty. He's a master at turning evil choices of men into fulfillments of his own purposes. Do you remember the book of Habakkuk? In the first, uh, you know, Habakkuk's, you know, maybe five, ten years or so before the Babylonians come over the mountains after uh, Judah and Jerusalem. And uh, he's looking around at his country and all the sin and the law not being fulfilled, and, and justice not being done. It, it, first four verse, it reads like it's America. But it's talking about Judah. And he's complaining about it, and he's asking, God, why aren't you doing something about it? And of course, sometimes we've wondered that. God, why don't you stop abortion? You know, why don't you stop all this ugliness that we're facing now? You can do that. Uh, but he seems to want to uh, let us experience the just desserts of our choices. I don't know the mind of God and all that. I just know we're going to win in the end, even if we don't win in elections. I mean, God is never up for re-election. Did you, did you notice that? Yeah, amen. Uh, in Habakkuk, you know, after Habakkuk said... Uh, to God his complaint. Why aren't you doing anything? God responds 
I am doing something. I've already started. You just don't know about it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, those wicked people, to come and stomp on your country. You think Habakkuk was happy with that answer from God? I doubt it. Because he goes on to complain. His next complaint was, God, you've, you weren't born yesterday. He actually says that in Hebrew. You know, aren't you from everlasting? He's, he's saying you weren't born yesterday. You know better than this. You, and he's telling God this. You've got the good guys and the bad guys mixed up. Sure, we're evil, and I complained about it, but we're a lot better than those guys that you're sending to stomp on us. And God just kind of tells him, yeah, you're just going to have to trust me on this. And in chapter 2, you need to have faith, and I will get the Babylonians one day. By the time you get to chapter 3, he's finally got it. And he's going to trust the Lord even when the bad guys come to destroy his country. And that's the essence of faith. And so here's God. He takes, I don't think he causes the evil of the Babylonians, but he knows they're going to be evil. He's tracking them. He knows what's going on. And he turns their evil to accomplish a purpose. And he does several things. I think he judged Assyria using the Babylonians. And now he's judging Judah for the Babylonians. And then later on, he's going to use the Persians to judge uh, Babylonia. No. And we're, all, we're sitting on pins and needles wondering who, who he's going to use to judge America. God is always using the evil of men to accomplish a good. So it shouldn't bother us that we have a passage like this that deals with disobedience and God uses this in a spiritual way for his plan with Israel, his plan with the church. And the disobedience of the Gentiles that lead back to the coming in again of Israel. And then we have, and it's alluded to in the previous sessions, the doxology section. There's the depth of the riches in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That speaks of the transcendence of God, I think, and even hints at his omniscience. The bigness of that, beyond what we are, I put Isaiah 55 there. I won't take the time uh, to look at that. Uh, but, the, you know, our thoughts are not his thoughts. He's so far above us, higher than us. And then, in verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor from Isaiah 40, a section there. And I go, um, you know, even Job, in Job 38, 42, when God shows up. You know, uh, who is it that gives God advice? Don't you, don't you give God advice every now and then? Say, Lord, this is how it should be in my life. Haven't you said that? Yeah, we've all tried to counsel him. But in the end, none of us can counsel the Lord. Our wisdom is not high enough. Our wisdom is not deep enough. We don't know the mind of the Lord. He knows everything up and down, outside, backwards. If I knew what the Lord makes, I might live at a casino and make some money because he can predict it all. But he doesn't want me at the casino. And then he says in verse 35, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Do you ever owe God? 
Do you owe God? You owe God, but God doesn't owe you. Job 41. And then the final statement that's put there. To him be glory forever. For, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now he breaks out in this doxology. And I think the doxology probably is fit for 9 through 11. It also fits the whole book of Romans up to this point, but probably just 9, 10, 11, all that he's been doing. The depth of riches in this mystery of Israel and the Gentiles and the, the truth that Israel has a future. Well, some conclusions we want to draw. First, there's no way that the church replaces Israel. There is no way that the church replaces Israel. Israel, in my mind, that destroys the character of God. Number two, Israel is under temporary judicial blindness. We're going to summarize that, that Lewis Berry Chafer used that term. Uh, they are judged in temporary blindness, put aside for a time, kind of on hold, but they are coming back. Number three, the passage does not teach that a believer can lose his salvation. I actually had an Assembly of God student in a Bible college class I was teaching who went to this passage to justify the lack of eternal security because he saw the breaking off as a matter of just individual redemption. Uh, that's not what this passage is about. Remember the operational plan, the program of God, the program with Israel, the program with the Gentiles. It doesn't teach that. The church must not practice anti-Semitism easier if you hold to replacement theology to allow for anti-Semitism. I'm not saying that replacement theology guys are anti-Semitic. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying their, their theology allows a, a, an open door that allows that to creep in if they're not careful. And you and I need to watch that because there are some, I have run into some dispensationalists that come across as anti-Semitic, which is a bit bizarre to me. And by the way, there's a lot of anti-Semitism right now in the United States. And you know where it's found? It's found in the social justice movement. Mostly West Coast. You know, I like what Jerry Falwell said all the time. He said, uh, the right coast is right and the left coast is wrong. <laughs> and then the Old Testament can be taken at face value. You remember the end of Romans 8, enters in before the 9, 10, 11? End of Romans 8, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. You believe that? Do you? You accept it at face value? Yes. Well, if you go back and read Amos 9, what does this say at the end of Amos 9? Israel's going to be back in the land, never to be uprooted again. Do you believe that? Take it at face value? See, we are consistent in our hermeneutic. The Old Testament can be taken at face value just like the New Testament promises. And then number six, we can have confidence in God's word. Remember Psalm 89, confidence in God's word is confidence in God. His character is at stake. There is a future for national Israel. To deny that is to, to deny God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your written word.
Uh, there's so much more here than, than we've had time to develop. I pray you'd help us as we study to mine all the great truth that you have. And Lord, uh, help us as we leave this place to be in full assurance of the truth of Israel's future. And uh, we ask you, Lord, to give us wisdom as we teach these things in our various churches, various ministries, wherever we go. Help us to do well in that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Mike. <clears throat> well, the Lord has answered prayer. The teaching of God's word has been faithful. It's been edifying. It's been informative and clarifying. These things are all answers to prayer. So praise the Lord for that. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for all you men who've taught the last uh, couple of days. Uh, I just want to mention uh, there is a uh, All Believers Conference starting tonight, as you probably already know, but if you didn't, that's at 6.30 sharp is the first session for that as we're going to continue. Um, Romans 12 through 16, uh, Pastor Roxer is going to teach tonight to start us off in Romans 12 and then Brad Maston as well tonight after that. Uh, I do want to mention that uh, next year, we are, at this point, tentatively still planning to have a, a conference just like this one, and the dates next year will be, Lord willing, October 2nd through the 6th, so you can plan ahead for that. Also, some of you have inquired, uh, will these uh, teachings be available soon, or how, how will they be made available? We will put them on our Duluth Bible Church YouTube channel, and you can find them there, but we're, we usually wait one month. Um, just to punish all those who didn't choose to come to the conference. <laughs> it's, it's the other way to look at it. We view it as an incentive for next year to actually come, and you can hear it sooner if you're here. So actually, we will probably get those packaged, cleaned up, and formatted and everything, including the breakout sessions that were recorded. We'll put a PowerPoint slide up to introduce them, and we'll put that all up on our Duluth Bible Church YouTube channel. Well, I know we've been talking about Israel a lot and the land of Israel and the people of Israel, but as believers in Jesus Christ, we have our citizenship in heaven and it's guaranteed that we're going to be there all because of our Savior. So let's end this portion of our conference by standing together and singing when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. <clears throat> Sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. While we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But when traveling days are over, not a shadow, not a sign. When we all get to heaven, 
What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of Him in glory will the toils of life repay when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. Onward to the prize before us, soon His beauty will behold. Soon the pearly gates will open, we shall tread the streets of gold. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we sing and shout the victory. Amen. And thank you so much for being part of our conference.